Tonight's talk is entitled, Going Beyond the Ten-Word Answer. And it's my way of starting to ramp us up into what I think is going to be one of the more challenging topics we'll ever address, and that is analyzing the intersection between science and biblical teachings. Now, I want to tell you from the outset of this series some biases that we have to kind of adopt or some shortcomings that we have. First of all, I'm not a scientist, okay? I don't think any of us in this room yet can claim the title of scientist. So what we're going to be doing is analyzing things that scientists have been saying in this dialogue. Our job is to construct a framework or analyze different people and what they're saying and seeing if that's consistent with the worldview that we adopt. So I put that out there in the beginning because I wish that I could present to you this material with authority of somebody who has a PhD in biology or astrophysics, but I can't. What I can do is present it to you from the only framework that I know, and then is trying to analyze something from a logical standpoint and making sure that it squares with what we know is true in the Bible. But we're gonna step back today and start much, much further. We're not gonna to dive today and say, all right, let's start with Genesis and analyze the text. I think we need to step back and actually analyze the bigger picture of what's going on and, as we always do at the beginning of every talk, justify why we're even going to spend time on this topic. Because I don't want to waste our time just because it sounds like a good topic. I think we really need to understand why it is that we're going to talk about it. So tonight, we're going to start with going beyond the 10-word answer. The 10-word answer is a political term. Okay, anybody watch West Wing in here? Anybody watch that? In a recent episode in West Wing, the president was up for election and they were getting ready for the debate. And all throughout the week, the staff was asking itself, have we figured out the 10-word answer? And the staff is debating, what is it going to be? What is the 10-word answer going to be? And as you go through the show, you start to realize that what a 10-word answer is, is when you're asked a difficult question on the campaign trail, you have to throw out a 10-word answer that just summarizes it, says it so beautifully that it convinces people that you're right and your opponent's wrong. And all week they're going through draft after draft of the 10-word answer on a number of different things, especially the economy. Fast forward to the end of the show, they're standing there, the two candidates are on the podium, they're debating, and you know that the staff still hasn't even come up with a 10-word answer yet, and they're wondering, what's the president going to say when he gets asked this difficult question? And he's standing there, they're debating back and forth, and the question comes to the opponent, and they ask him a difficult question about economics, and he throws out this beautiful answer, and now it's time for the president to respond. He just stares out at the crowd, and he says, did you hear it? That was the 10-word answer. My staff has been looking for an answer that sounds that good all week. And they haven't been able to come up with one. And you know the reason why? Because in real life, there are no 10-word answers. What is a 10-word answer in Christianity? It's one that is, comes out of emotion, that makes us feel good about something. But when you analyze the logic behind it, when you analyze the complexity of it, it just doesn't hold up. And my hypothesis to you tonight that I want you to start to listen to, it'll be my bias as we go throughout this series, is Christians have been throwing out 10-word answers about science for so long that we've lost our credibility in the topic. And I hope that we start to figure out why 10-word answers don't work anymore and why it's our responsibility to go deeper. 
Why study the interplay of science and the Bible? Let's set up our justification. Why are we going to spend weeks on this topic? I think the first reason is because we are called to be witnesses. You know that. We spent a long time on a witnessing series about what our role is to be as witnesses. We have not just a responsibility, we actually have a commandment direct from Jesus. Last words on earth, you guys know. Go therefore into all the world, preach my gospel to every nation. It's a commandment to go. It's also a commandment when we're not going that we need to preach the word. But we need to be credible. If our witness is not credible, no one's going to listen. We're going to be mocked out of the courtroom. So just for the credibility of our own witness, we need to know what we're talking about. And increasingly, people are asking about this topic. Second factor. I think you guys might realize this. You've looked around. There's an increasing secularization in America. Tonight, we're going to analyze the root causes, I think. But if you look around America every single day, I don't care if you're a new Christian, an old Christian, or not a Christian at all, you've at least got to look around and understand the climate in which you live in. Every day, there is more hostility to religion in America. And it seems that most of the hostility is focused on Christianity, all right? Whether it's people who say to a judge in the Supreme Court of Alabama, you can't have the Ten Commandments hanging above your courtroom, even though they hang in the Supreme Court of the United States, even though every one of the Ten Commandments practically is a law on the books, even though the Ten Commandments doesn't advocate Christianity directly, you can't have it, okay? You guys remember the Pledge of Allegiance, right? The whole thing with let's just take the words under God out of there. Why? Because there's a mission going on to neutralize America to, in the name of freedom, to remove any vestiges of religion whatsoever. And this began almost 100 years ago. We're going to start there tonight and figure out how we got here. And it began, by the way, with an inability of Christians to respond to scientific questions. And finally, there's a biblical commandment. You guys know it. We're going to cover it at the end to be prepared to always give an answer, it's in the Bible. We need to know enough and be prepared enough so when someone asks us a reason that we are Christians, we can actually respond with something intelligent. I think those reasons justify what we're talking about. I think understanding the root causes of how we ended up tonight is why I'm spending a few extra weeks to get right into the Bible about science, because I think we need to lay the groundwork. I think it's easy to dive into Genesis and just start defending it. I think we need to broaden our horizons a little bit and understand what's going on in our culture. All right, next slide. Where did it all begin? Where did Christianity lose its foothold in America? You know, I think sometimes if you went to a time capsule and you went back into like the 1850s, the 1830s, the 1870s, sometime in those years, and you said, there is going to be a time when America is throwing out things like the Pledge of Allegiance, the Ten Commandments. I mean, people would be shocked. It, it was incomprehensible. People say that America used to be a Christian nation, but if you look back at our history, the word Christian nation didn't even really come out because it was presumed. It wasn't even like you had to identify it. Just saying America was the same thing as saying a land where Christianity is dominant. And somehow today, if you look at it in the year 2005, We've come so far, less than 100 years. Where did it all start? My hypothesis to you is it started in 1925. Now, it has its roots earlier. For you guys who are deeply into philosophy, we can go back to like John Locke. Remember him from like ninth grade American history, wherever you guys took that? Remember John Locke? Some of you might have ventured into a history class in college accidentally once, all right? 
and heard about like the social contract theory, remember that? Way back, even in the 1600s, we started seeing the roots of secularization. Why? Because we started giving up the notion that God appointed authorities. Remember the divine right of kings theory? Because we thought that was so evil. We were trying to get away from kings. So we started thinking, well, maybe man has a social contract. You give up your freedom and we'll govern you. And that's what became the roots of governments even that didn't have Christianity as their base. But that's okay because America still found itself as a nation under God and seemed to be doing okay for the first few hundred years. But it really hit the skids in 1925. It really hit the skids in the Scopes trials. Anybody know what the Scopes trial is? Anybody ever heard of it? Let me give you a little bit of a background. The Scopes trial was probably the first trial of the century. Contrary to popular belief, it was not OJ. OJ was like a circus, okay? Now that's not saying that the Scopes trial was not also a circus. It was in its own right. But here's what was happening in the Scopes trial. Put up some of the players on the screen so you guys can kind of get a background of what's going on. We're in Tennessee. In the middle of Tennessee in 1925, there's a guy on trial. His name is John Scopes. He's a teacher. Anybody know what he taught? He taught science. He taught specifically biology. John Scopes was a biology teacher who had taught, among other things, he taught out of a book that had the creation theory and had some other theories. But there was a chapter in the middle of the book that taught that evolution was a theory also. Unfortunately, in Tennessee at the time, there was something called the Butler Act, which made it, well, made it illegal to teach evolution. All right, so you guys got to know, we're talking about an America that doesn't even exist anymore today, right? What's the rule today? Today, you can't even have a state that teaches creation, right? So we've, we've got a flipped around America today. But back then, if you can go back in time, it was illegal to teach evolution. You couldn't even mention it as a theory in Tennessee. And this was not just a small thing. The whole state legislature had gotten together and said, we find that teaching evolution corrupts people's minds, okay? Now to us, that might seem a little silly. If you got caught teaching evolution, you'd be put on trial and you got fined. Okay, the fine was 100 bucks. But 100 bucks back then was a lot of money. So John Scopes is on trial. There's a little known group back then called the ACLU. They've become more prominent in today's culture. By the way, when we talked about the secularization of America just a few minutes ago, Pledge of Allegiance case, we talked about the Ten Commandments case, who is behind those cases? ACLU. So even back at this point, you have a group of people, the American Civil Liberties Union, who called up John Scopes and said, listen, we're very interested in your case. Will you admit under oath that you taught evolution in a classroom, get arrested, we want you to have a trial, and we will bring in counsel to defend you? John Scopes thought, sounds like a good deal, let's test the law. Because he obviously thought that evolution belonged to the classroom as well. So, ACLU funds the defense, and they bring in a very prominent lawyer by the name of Clarence Darrow. Now, I went to law school, and we studied Clarence Darrow like he was the supreme lord of the defense. Clarence Darrow is probably the most famous orator in all of legal history. His closing arguments were the kind of stuff that legend are. There's actually books just written about Clarence Darrow's closing arguments. And you read them the way that if you were in an English class, you would read literature. Lawyers actually just pour over these things, and we're just in awe of the amazing things and the way he would weave words together. This is in a time when there was no TV yet. There was barely radio coming out. So they would print his closing arguments in newspapers and in pamphlets, and people all across America would just read them. 
He was able to get off a lot of different people, but we think of today, if you think of a defense lawyer today, who are you gonna think of like someone like Johnny Cochran or these people? I mean, this guy put these guys to shame. He was in a league all his own. He begged for this case. This was the only case Clarence Darrow ever took on for free his entire life. And there was a reason. Because the guy who was coming in as the heavy hitter on the other side was somebody he really had it in for. The other side brought in Williams Jennings Bryan. Now, who is this guy? Bryan was three times the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. He was very well known. He had actually run for president three separate times. And if you think, all right, he, it's true that he lost all three times. But he was elected three different times. Clarence Darrow, in his memoirs, remembers being at the Democratic National Convention when Bryan was elected to be the party nominee and said, I have never in my life heard anyone deliver a speech like what he just gave. The entire room exploded. Darrow, by the way, was running for Congress that year when he first met Brian, and they were on the same kind of ticket. One was running for Democratic Congress in a, in a jurisdiction, and Brian was running for president. When Brian lost, Darrow lost, and he was forever kind of out to get the guy, I think. You know? He didn't like him very much. But Brian eventually became the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. Okay, this guy was not just a regular lawyer. He was an accomplished statesman. He has his dream, by the way, was to be a Baptist preacher. That's what he liked all his life, but he was so scared of water and the immersion baptism that he actually converted to become a Presbyterian because they only sprinkled it on. True story. But Brian, after he had left being Secretary of State because he was a pacifist in part, he did not like going into World War I, he dedicated his life to stopping evolutionary doctrine. Okay? Now, I want you to analyze Brian for a second because... Today, in 2005, when you ask Christians, what's your politics, or you ask a non-Christian, what's the politics of most evangelical Christians today? They're going to tell you they're right wing, right? They're going to tell you that they're like, you know, lovers of Reagan, lovers of Bush, right? Like the crazy mindless guys, right? Brian was a Democrat. Brian was concerned about the rights of the poor. He was concerned about the rights of workers. And the reason he hated evolution, by the way, was because as he looked at it, it didn't make sense to him. He saw too many holes in it. But there was another reason he hates it for you students of American history. If you remember at the turn of the century, we had something called social Darwinism emerging in America. The idea that if you were Darwinist in science, survival of the fittest, you should be also Darwinist in your social policy, survival of the fittest. So the poor, the downtrodden, the working class, American politics at that time was like, I'm sorry, there's no room for you at the table because we want the fittest, the best, the brightest to emerge. And that was the Republican stance back then. And here's Brian, who's a Democrat, fighting for a biblical view of how to treat people. So for those of you who are taken on by people all the time about how all Christians have to be right-wing conservatives, look at this guy. He's got a social justice platform. He's running for president on it, citing the Bible the entire time about why we need to take care of these people. And Brian, by the way, is credited with turning the Democratic Party around and turning it into a more of a social justice type of party. And isn't it ironic that as the Democratic Party has continued down that line, it's actually the ones that are now rejecting Christianity. Strange bedfellows, politics and religion. You can never get it right, it seems. But I want you guys to at least realize that the person who's championing the Bible in an anti 
evolutionary standpoint, begins his life as probably one of the greatest Democrats at the turn of the century. When Brian hears about the case, he's already been on the war path against evolution all across the United States. And they actually call him up and they say, Mr. Brian, we'd like you to come and be on the prosecution team prosecuting this guy. Now, this is where everything starts to go wrong in the Scopes trial, and this is why we inherited the win. Anybody know that book? Anybody read it? There's a famous play written about the Scopes trial called Inherit the Wind. It was first made into a play on Broadway. It was made into a great movie with Gene Kelly, all these people playing these great roles. It's actually been remade again. They put it on TV. They love this movie because it bashes Christianity so well. Because what happens at the trial is an, just a massacre of Christianity. And there was no reason for it. You see, under the Butler Law, all you had to do was walk John Scopes into the courtroom and say, did you teach evolution? And he would say, yes, I did. Go, thank you, Your Honor. That's all we need to do. The fine is $100. Let's just move on. You don't need to have five guys on the prosecution and three or four guys on the defense, including the entire ACLU standing there. Okay, you don't need that. You don't even need really any witnesses. You just need to ask the guy one question. I have one question for you. Did you teach evolution? The guy was going to say yes. He was waiting for this. He wanted to get convicted. Anybody know why somebody wants to get convicted? Right. He wanted to appeal. Because Clarence Darrow wanted to appeal to the Supreme Court of Tennessee. And if he had a conviction, now he had a golden ticket to walk in and appeal the law and rule it unconstitutional. That's all they wanted. But instead, what happened was we got the real first circus. And unfortunately, I think as Christians, we did inherit the wind. This was the first trial ever to be radio televised or radio broadcast, I guess, across the United States. People from all over the U.S. were waiting for this trial to happen two years in advance. When it was broadcast, like people were sitting by their radios, they didn't even go to work. They were blown off work to hear what was going on in this trial. There were so many people in the courtroom, the judge was concerned that they were going to, like, the walls were literally going to blow outward. So he made everybody go outside and do it on the lawn. They had the trial outside because there were so many people. And if you can imagine, every kind of freak and geek in the world was there. Some with banners saying it was the end of the world. Some guys, like, put down your Bibles. There were people who were, like, handing out the read your Bible signs. In fact, it took seven days until Clarence Darrow finally objected that on the, court, the side of the courtroom, there was this huge banner that said, read your Bible. And it was kind of hanging over the proceedings the whole time, you know. And finally, he just goes, you know, I just have to object. This is so unfair, you know. I don't get to put mine up there that says, like, read your Darwin underneath it, do I? Can I do that? The judge finally said, all right, we'll pull that one down, you know. This was a circus. But the most crucial moment in the case, and the thing that makes it the most of, the, of a circus, is when Brian himself, who's the prosecutor, I want you to think about this, okay? They're turning this trial, that should have been a one-question trial, they're turning it into eight or nine days of, 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 of intense fighting in the courtroom. And none of it has to do with the Butler Act. All of it has to do with whether the Bible is true or evolution is true. Finally, Clarence Darrow, who's so frustrated that he's not allowed to bring in his own expert the way he wants him to, turns around and says, I call William Jennings Bryan to the stand. Of course, it's like that classic scene now you've seen in a movie a hundred times. They're like, you can't call me to the stand. Okay, This was invented in 1925 in a real case. He calls him to the stand. He sits on the stand and he says to him, I'm going to question you because you purport to be an expert on the Bible. I have questions about the Bible. 
And Brian, in one of his most stupid, probably moves ever, says, I'll agree to this because I am an expert on the Bible and he takes the stand. And Darrow begins cross-examining him as only Darrow can and humiliates him on the stand. Just tears him apart. Why am I telling you all this? Well, one, I think it all could have been prevented. Do you know that two years before this trial began, before Brian ever took the stand, why he did that, I don't know, but I think he was trying to show off. He was trying to defend the Bible on national radio in front of everybody and show them what a fool the evolutionists were. Two years before he took the stand, Clarence Darrow, in, a, in one of the major newspapers, had published 55 questions that he was going to ask Brian when they got to the trial. Do you think that Brian should have had at least a clue that he should have known the answers to some of those questions? I mean, if your opposing counsel, in, in any case that I'm in, sends me 55 questions and says, by the way, when we get to trial, I'm going to ask you these questions. You better know that every witness I have is going to know the answer to every one of those questions. They are not going to take the stand and kind of just go like, all right, so what's your first question? You know, I mean, they, they're going to know those 55 cold. In fact, I'm going to be thinking, is it a trick that he told me these? Is there something going on that I don't understand? How could he tell me his questions in advance? But they were published in a newspaper. People actually debated the answers well before Brian ever stood in the courtroom. And yet here was Brian, distinguished, well-known, reputable, intelligent, and he was about to take the stand and defend Christianity for the whole world to see without having prepared for his statement. What did Darrow ask him? Darrow asked him, for example, you say there was Adam and then there was Eve, right? Brian agrees. He says, and they had a son, right? His name was Cain, right? Brian agrees. He goes, and then it says right here in Genesis that Cain went to the next county and got married. Like, where did she come from? Brian didn't have an answer. So then they start debating about Jonah. He goes, okay, so let me get this straight. You believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And Brian's like, no, 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 it was a big fish. doesn't say whale. He's like, whale, fish. Do you really believe that he was swallowed and lived for three days in the belly of a big fish? Yes, I do. Well, how is that possible exactly? I don't know. But the Lord says it, so I believe it. That's what the good book says, right? Isn't that what everybody used to say? It's what the good book says. So then they move on about Joshua. Do you really believe that the sun was held up that extra time so that Joshua could finish slaying all those extra people? Brian, absolutely. Darrow asks him, do you, have you ever considered what would happen if the solar systems just stopped revolving for a moment and everything was held in its place? Like what would happen to gravitational forces? No. You have no explanation. You've never thought about it. No. All right, let's talk about the age of the earth. How old do you think the earth is? Brian's like, don't really know. He's like, is it old, young? What do you think? Well, eventually they get Brian to admit that it's probably somewhere around 4,000 BC is when it all like began. So the earth is about 6,000 years old. So Darrow starts to ask him, so you're basing your calculations on the genealogy in Genesis, right? He goes, well, it could be that. It could be something else. They spend like half an hour going back and forth until they finally get Brian to admit, okay, the earth is about 6,000 years old. And Darrow asks him, what about those Chinese civilizations that go back like seven or 8,000 years? Like, how do they fit into the picture? Brian says, I don't, I don't think they do fit in the picture. They must be 6,000 or less. He's like, well, you use the genealogy to figure out the genealogy going back to Adam. How about those civilizations like the Egyptians who have their genealogy written down and it goes back like 10,000 years? What about them? He says, I, I don't think that that's true. And they go back and forth. And you see, as Darrow keeps moving, Darrow keeps moving, Christianity looks like it has less and less of an answer to a national audience. 
I'm going to read you this part right out of the transcripts. On, on, on the lawn outside the county courthouse, Darrow continues his harsh examination of Brian. He identifies one miracle after another in the Bible and demands to know whether Brian believed every miracle actually happened. Did Joshua make the sun stand still? Did a whale really swallow Jonah? Did God really confuse the tongues of the arrogant people who built the Tower of Babel? Was Eve literally made out of Adam's rib? The exchanges become increasingly testy. Brian accuses Darrow of calling the spectators in the bleachers yokels. Brian insists, these are the people you insult with your charges of ignorance and bigotry. Darrow responds, you insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your fool religion. The judge jumps in, all right, I can't stand for that. It's not a fool religion, the judge agrees. Brian decides to explain his decision for taking the stand. I am simply trying to protect the word of God against the greatest atheist and agnostic in the United States. The crowd erupts in loud applause before Brian can continue. I am not afraid to get on the stand in front of him and let him do his worst. I want the world to know. The crowd responds again with prolonged applause. Darrow turns to the crowd and says, I wish I could get a picture of these clackers. The face-off in the hot sun continues. Brian repeatedly takes a handkerchief to wipe the sweat off his brow. Darrow asks Brian whether the reason snakes crawl on their belly was because the snake in the Garden of Eden tempted Eve with an apple. Brian says, I believe that. Darrow asks, well, how did the snake walk before that? Do you know if it walked on its tail or not? Brian doesn't know. No, sir, I have no way to know. Brian blasts back at Darrow. I want the world to know that this man who does not believe in a God is trying to use a courtroom in Tennessee to slur the Bible. Darrow breaks in. I object to that. It's not responsive to the question. He tries to shout down his adversary. I object to your statement. I am exempting you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. It's just a sample of the kind of things that are going on. Is this trial about evolution? Is this trial about the Butler Act? This trial is about two men who are trying to shout each other down, one to disprove Christianity, and one who arrogantly believes that his answers are going to save Christianity. Do you notice how many times Brian didn't answer the question and just gave a speech? Isn't that what Christians tend to do when we're confronted with things we don't know or things that scare us? So the next slide is going to talk about that, but you're going to see that it's one that's grounded in fear. It's one that the mindless people of the world are going to really love. And by the way, most of those mindless people are occupying the pews in a local church half the time. They're the type of people that when you say something to them, they do that clap. You know that clap that I love? You know that one? You know what I'm talking about? You just say something and it sounds so good, just like the cheers that are going on here. It said the crowd erupts in loud applause before Brian can continue. You know the kind of applause it is. I mean, you know, Daryl's looking at him. He says they're yokels. Why? Because they're doing this. You know, they're just waiting for a political rally. They're not there for a religious thing. They're waiting for somebody to say something that sounds so good that they can applaud to it and go, yeah. And we do that in churches all the time. And we leave answers wanting. People are asking real questions. We're not answering them. As a result of this brutal attack, and I'm not going to present to you the hundred years that have followed Scopes. I, there is a website that is devoted to tracking how the Scopes trial has affected religion in America. And when we started with it's becoming increasingly secular, here's why. We have a divided church today. Half the church is trying to hang on to the pre-Scopes interpretations, trying to justify the Bible through some scary reasoning. And then we got the rest of the church who's almost trying to beat up the other half to bring them into the 21st century. And they're not helping either. 
You know, rather than uniting together and saying, we've got to answer the questions, we got half of them who are like, you know, trying to like not answer questions, and the other ones who are so mad at their brethren that we're actually fighting each other. Isn't that exactly what an enemy would want us to do, just to fight each other and forget that we have to still give an answer? They've been waiting. How about you guys? We've asked this before. Where did Cain get his wife? Did the sun really stand still? What happened to the snake? You know, it's not like these questions, I mean, they're, they've been around since 1925. Actually, they've been around since 1923 when Darrow said he was going to ask them. And most of us still couldn't answer them. So when we say, like, Brian was an idiot to take the stand when he knew the questions in advance and didn't know the answers, what about us? What else does it result in? Well, we now as a church have a presumption of ignorance. Christianity operates under a presumption of ignorance. If you talk to anybody who's outside the church and you start to tell them, like, well, the church has a response to science, they're thinking, I can't wait to hear that. You know, we're the yokels. We inherited that because we couldn't give good answers. So people just, they don't even, they just dismiss us. Today, the answers that are coming out for the first time are starting to show the fallacy of evolution so well, but you know what? Nobody's even listening anymore. If this had happened in 1935, 1945, 1955, somebody might have listened. But to wait until like 1995 before someone like Philip Johnson publishes a book, Darwin on Trial, and really starts to rip the guy, it wasn't until then that somebody actually went, oh my God. Yeah, this guy might be right, you know. Let's see what he has to say. It was too late. By the time he came out and started actually really leading this whole movement to kind of discredit some of the Darwinian theories, no one, we had such a presumption of ignorance to overcome, we couldn't even make the spotlight. Nobody cares. They're just like, those are just a bunch of foolish Christians writing some book. And that's some lawyer at Berkeley over there writing that book, some crazy guy. Like, ah, what a weirdo. If we define a 10-word answer this way, then I don't know that we want it. Because it's, first of all, an answer that appeals to our emotions. It appeals to something inside of us that's an emotion that we're trying to scratch the itch, okay? Rather than the actual question that's being asked. In modern parlance, we call it a soundbite. Now, yes, it's nice to have maybe something close to it, like an elevator pitch, like something you can say really quickly to entice someone to come in. Or, you know, today during the service, George was saying, like, if someone says, are you a Christian? He says, no, I'm an apprentice of Christ. Because it, it, it rings like a little dissonant so that you, somebody would be drawn in to say, what? And then they've opened themselves up. Now they, now they have to listen to you. Okay, that might be somewhere to go. But a 10-word answer is one, like I said, that evokes the emotion. And what's the emotion it's mostly trying to cover up? Fear. Someone is scared that their religion is about to be exposed and laid bare and they don't have an answer. So when someone gives them a 10-word answer that makes them feel good, they just, you know? Alicia, go to the next slide. I'll show you an example. This is actually something that William Jennings Bryan actually said. And we, it still survives in the church today. I've actually heard it. It is better to trust in the rock of ages than to know the ages of rocks. Doesn't that just sound good? It makes you feel good. You know, you're sitting in a church somewhere and somebody's like, Pastor, how old is the earth? Isn't it like 37 billion years old or something? Or is it 60? I'm confused. And the pastor, who has no idea... There's no teachings in science or whatever it is in some, I don't know, yokel church in Tennessee, right? What can they say? Well, William Jennings Bryan said, just say this. It's better to know the rock of ages than it is to know the ages of rocks. And the person feels more spiritual, like, yeah, amen, pastor. Amen. I know the rock of ages. Oh. All right. 
This statement is somewhat, I mean, look, the statement's true. It's better to know Jesus Christ than know the age of the rocks. You had to pick one, pick Jesus, all right? But the thing ignores the question. The guy is asking a question from the depths of their heart. Pastor, I'm confused. There are people in science telling us that the earth is 13 billion years old, and you're trying to give us a 6,000-year thing. Do you know that the bishop, I, I wish I had his name, it begins with a U, he was like an Anglican bishop or an Irish bishop or some of the Protestant reform movement. He had actually pegged the day, the time that Adam was created. I mean, this was a guy who measured it with such certainty. He said it was like October 23rd, some year, 4004 BC, and gave the time. And yet you're reading about all these other things like dinosaurs and fossils and mammoths. And, and you're just asking, Pastor, what about that? You throw this out. I hadn't answered anything. But it appeases somebody and go, yeah. Go to the next slide. Let's try another one that William Jennings Bryan actually used to throw out. I love this guy. All right. When I want to read fiction, I don't turn to Arabian Nights. I turn to works of biology because I like my fiction wild. Now, you're standing at a rally and you're telling this to people and they're like, yeah. Because, you know, at the turn of the century, the Arabian Nights, you know, those dark people that didn't believe in Jesus over there. Those are like the craziest people on the planet, you know. Arabian Nights was like about as wild as you can get to a, like a basically all-white country, all right? I like my fiction wild, you know? Can you imagine saying that at some prayer rally and all those people just saying, amen, pastor, that's what I want to hear, right? Because I want something that makes me feel like I've got the moral high ground. I'm okay. Here's another one. I will give $100 to the man or woman that signs an affidavit declaring that he or she personally descended from an ape. He used to give that challenge at the beginning of every talk he gave. Does that have anything to do with evolution? Does that have anything to do with the questions that are being asked when someone says, but I am confused. Where did this Neanderthal caveman thing fit in? Why are there people saying they're finding these fossils? Why is the radiocarbon dating thing saying that the earth has been around so much longer? Can you explain that? And this is the answer you're getting back. So you think you came from a monkey? I'll give you a hundred bucks if you sign an affidavit saying that. But it made people feel they would laugh along with them. And because they didn't understand and had no understanding on their own, they championed somebody who was at least speaking out. I give him credit for that. I give him credit for a lot of things he did. But in all the years that have followed, we're doing the same thing. In the trial, Darrow asks William Jennings Bryan, do you think that the earth was created in six literal days? And Bryan says, I'm not sure about that. And Darrow says, do you think it's possible that it was longer? And, Dar and Brian says, I don't know that it had to be a 24-hour day. And Darrow says, so you leave room for the fact that it could be more than 24-hour days. And Brian on the stand says, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that they were more like periods of time rather than literal days. It's kind of forward thinking for a guy like Brian, by the way. So fast forward to 1980s. When Jerry Falwell, like kind of the new Brian, <laughs> actually says that William Jennings Bryan disgraced evangelicals all over the United States because he allowed for the idea and the notion that the days in Genesis might not be literal 24-hour days, they might be periods of time. And they actually criticized the guy and basically defrocked him as the great leader of evangelicals that he was. How odd is that? Like, it wasn't enough that we should learn from his mistakes and do better and learn to answer the questions. But here we are, all the way at the end of the century, 
saying, you know what, I don't think he was a literalist enough. That guy screwed up on the stand, not because he didn't have the answers or the right answers, but because he said the Bible was in six literal days. That guy can't be trusted at all. You've got his own people now attacking him. Let's go to the next slide, Alicia. Here's the last one that I love. Ten-word answer. It takes science over 13 billion years to create the universe, but my God did it in six days. Who says that? Not William Jennings Bryan. I heard this this century. I heard this from a church that I'll leave unnamed, but you guys probably know who it is. In the 2000s, this was the answer given. Why? It's a good question. I think it has to do with fear. Let's go to the next slide, Alicia. Let's start with secularists for a moment. Why do secularists try so hard to discredit the Bible? Here's my answer. It's fear. The reason that if you look at America today and you look at it and you think, why is America increasingly secular? Here's the answer, in my opinion, my humble opinion. It's fear. Fear that if the Bible is true, that if Jesus is the only way, that if the Lord's commandments are the standard by which we're to be held, that if there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, that if anyone who does not accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and repents their way will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, all biblical doctrines, fear that if those things are true, then you would really have to change your life around and give up your self-indulgent freedom that we all cling to. If you want to look at the secularization of America, it really comes down to this. We want our freedom. Christians know that freedom is only found in Christ. But America wants different kind of freedom. They want freedom to do anything they want. Don't get in my way. All right? It doesn't matter whether it starts small, healthy, where things usually start. But let's just take it to as much of an extreme as we can. We want to do anything we damn well please. And the Bible needs to move out of the way. Because it's the last thing that's standing in the way of people just doing whatever they want. And they're afraid that if the Bible were true, if the claims made were true, imagine if a court of law adjudicated tomorrow that Jesus is the only way to go to heaven and it was beyond dispute. Wouldn't everybody in America have to change their ways suddenly? What if the Bible was adjudicated to be 100% true, that every word in it is it was true? Would you have to change your views about all these social things that we go through every day? Christians and non-Christians alike, by the way, you know, we're really good at hammering the non-Christians and saying, oh, you'd have to give up your homosexuality and your pornography. Well, Christianity would have to give that up too, by the way. Christianity would have to give up its judgmental attitude. Christianity would have to give up all sorts of things. If we really believed it was true, we would stop using guilt as the method of packing our churches. You know, we would start using love a little bit more freely. We'd take care of the poor, right? We'd take care of those people. There wouldn't be people in Africa starving as much, right? or even in our own backyards. But certainly, to the people who are trying to tear Christianity apart, it would be a real problem for them because all the times when they stand up, what are, what are we championing these days? Defense of marriage, right? You know, integrity of life, those kind of things. They'd have to put down their, their fights over those things and change their lives. They don't want to do that. But at least you know that's what's driving secularization. If we can just get rid of the Christians in America then we get rid of their judgmental, 
ways and that hypocrisy that's been the plague of Western society since the beginning. That's the view. And guess what? Up until 1950, 1960, even in the 70s, and I was a little kid in the 70s, all right? I was like five. But I remember this thinking, I don't understand how America will ever be not a Christian. I just don't see it. We'd hear about persecution all over the world. I'd think that's never going to happen in America. And you know what? Today, I can't believe that in 30 years this is where we are. Next slide, Alicia. Why do we like the 10-word answer? Same reason, fear. We'd like to hear our pastor give us a rising 10-word answer that we can applaud to. So when we leave the church, we just turn to one another and go, wasn't pastor's message so good today? All right. Instead of really delving into the issues that pastor and me and a whole bunch of other people have no idea what the answer to the question is, and it's still being asked every day since 1925, and we still haven't answered it. A few people have, but no one's reading those books because we're fighting each other over whether the earth is 13 billion or 6,000 years old, you know. Here's the fear in us that causes us to want 10-word answers. Number one, we're afraid that if we admit there's an old earth, that it really is as old as science tells us, that we're basically giving in to the evolutionists, that God will be wiped away, that he'll be found not to be true. And we fight this every day, you know. They send probes to Mars and they go, if you find water on Mars, God doesn't exist. You know, I heard people say that in newspapers. They're like, uh, if it ever turns out there's water on Mars, that just proves that God doesn't exist. Why? I don't even understand the logic behind that. And yet people are out there like searching for water every day just to go, ah, God doesn't exist. Like, what does that have to do with anything? The Bible never said anything about Mars. In fact, Christian scientists guarantee there will be water on Mars. and They put a whole explanation why. Crazy. Fear number two, that if we believe in an older earth, that we're denying Adam and Eve and the whole story. It's not true. We're going to walk through that. And, and I'll, I'll confess my bias right now. My bias is that there are ways to reconcile the Bible with an old earth view, and I think they're brilliant. They actually prove the Bible, don't disprove it. But I'm going to let you guys come to that conclusion. I'm going to try to hold my biases back. But I'm just trying to point out that just because you believe in that does not mean you have to give it up. Fear number three, people believe that if we believe in an older earth, that it's going to be a denial of biblical inerrancy. That those precious six days that even William Jennings Bryan said might be periods all the way back in 1925, we've still got people today who have to rally out the cry like it's a political rally. My God can do it in six days and everybody's clapping. Here's another fear that old earth views elevate science against the Bible. In other words, that we first believe science and we go scurrying around trying to make the Bible conform to it. And that's not true. I'm going to show you some ways that the Bible is so amazing that a book written by a desert nomadic people 3,000 years before Christ could contain the detail that it does about scientific theory. I mean, the numbers are mind-boggling. Most scientists, when you confront them with that, and go, how is it possible that these nomadic people could have figured this out? They go, well, it's easy. They just inserted it later. That's the only explanation because it couldn't be that a God could speak the words divinely and tell them the secrets of the universe way before Darwin ever starts to unleash a few of them. And finally, people who believe in an old earth view are scared of it. Well, they got a problem now because it's going to be like admitting they spoke too soon or that they just didn't know. It's fear on both sides. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you tonight as we walk through this discussion over the next few weeks about science. It's been driven by fear since 1925. It's been driven by a lack of answers. But the reason we can't even agree on it on either side is because the secularists, for fear of Christianity, are trying to wipe Christianity away from America. And if you doubt that, come talk to me afterwards. I'll show you a million ways that America is increasingly becoming secular in almost ridiculous ways. And I get to watch it legally every day in the legal newspapers. Like, it just blows your mind what's happening on the legal battlefield. And I can't even say it's judicial activism, all those crazy judges making decisions. The decisions they're making have been in place since the 1950s. They're just moving them forward. You know, when they took out prayer in schools and Bible reading and all that, that set like a whole course that we were going to go on. You know, it's just that most people woke up in like 2000 when they took away the under God and the Pledge of Allegiance and said, oh my God, they're taking religion away from me. It's like, no, they've been doing it for 50 years. You've just been asleep at the wheel. It's also fear on our side, not just on the secularist side. It's fear on our side to confront a God who is so big, who's so much beyond our comprehension that he could do things we can't comprehend. We want to always be able to put them in little boxes in the 10-word answer and comprehend the whole thing. And you know what? God is so much bigger than that. It shouldn't shock us when we don't understand. If we could understand him, he wouldn't be God. He would be finite like us and our stupid professors in college, right? Go to the next slide if you could, Alicia. This is the biblical commandment that I referred to earlier. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Let me say it again. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope that we have is Jesus Christ. What's the reason we believe in him? Can we justify? Can we take it out? Always be prepared to give an answer. And I hope that's what you're going to be learning over the next few weeks. But do this with gentleness and respect, not with judgmentalism and guilt and all those kind of things. Do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Never has that been more true than today, the ending of that, that those who want to slander you will be ashamed. There's some great people out there in the intelligent design movement, and they're, you know, I don't know if I agree with everything they're saying all the time, but they're advancing theories that show that evolution doesn't really work and that their theories really work. And I read a review by one of them who says, the number one thing we must do is not just attack evolutionists. Let them attack us. Our science stands up. If we're seen as always constantly attacking, then we're the ones who look like we're the outsiders. We have a corner on the truth. We know it. Our theories will stand up. God's truth will stand up. Let them slander us. And when our science ultimately stands, then they'll be ashamed for their attack on us. You guys know my favorite citation. It comes from Evangelism Explosion. Excuse me, that's what it is. It talks about the great mathematician who figured out the odds of evolution, and he was a big evolutionist in the movement. And he kept figuring and refiguring and refiguring and refiguring. And finally, he was done refiguring and he couldn't figure out a way to make it mathematically possible for evolution to work from the single cell theory all the way to where we are. And I mean, he's a hardcore evolutionist. Nobody was challenging him. He was doing this on his own. In his own papers, he finally concluded it was scientifically impossible. So rather than just give up the gig and say, everybody, all right, maybe there's a thing to this God thing after all. He says, no, what was it? It was a super alien race from another dimension that crossed over into ours and kicked off the whole thing and then moved back to their dimension. That's more believable than believing in God as a super alien race. Look, maybe it's true, but we have to at least get to the bottom of it. That's what we're doing.
All right? Remember this verse from Mark eleven eighteen. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Who are they talking about? Jesus. Jesus had a way of speaking to people that just had so much authority that people just wanted him dead. I think that holds true today. I think the Bible, I think scripture, I think God's word, I think the truth that we have is so powerful, is so true, that anybody who wants to have their own way is going to want us, it, the Bible, and Jesus dead. It's the only way left. Before they had to kind of put up with it, but now they have their opening. Let's just get rid of these guys. It's up to us to continue to preach the same way. And stop Jesus. Jesus reminds us when we take on unpopular positions like this, and some of the stuff we're going to be talking about is going to be wildly unpopular to scientists, to secularists. But he reminds us this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. Of course, we know most of them didn't obey his. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You know, those promises I used to wonder, do they just not apply to America? And today, I think they apply to us almost as much as anywhere else. You go over to China and you see that there's 70 million Chinese people meeting in house churches under the threat of death. We don't have 70 million Christians in America that have that kind of faith. We used to send missionaries to China. They should be sending them over here. We're the ones that need to remember what it's like to really have the kind of faith that you'd be literally risking your life to go to church over. Our series is going to explore the topics of science and religion, especially as it's viewed in the Bible. But I want you to understand that it's much more than that. There's more than that at stake. I'm using science and religion to create a framework for us to understand what's happening to America how we need to be prepared to respond to it. And hopefully along the way, by the way, that you will pick up some things to learn to respond. We are going to dive into the actual subject matters so that when someone does confront you or ask you a question, you might actually have an answer. Maybe at the very least, you'll know by the end of this talk where Cain got his wife. So that if anybody ever reminds you of the Scopes trial, you go, oh yeah, I at least figured out one of those. <laughs> it might be good enough to get you off the hook and we could at least see that Christianity has made some step forward in 100 years to at least answer one of the questions presented at the Scopes trial. Let's pray. Lord, the things that you've laid before us tonight are so much bigger than we are. They deal with a complex mixture of history and sociology, people's beliefs and attitudes about religion and politics, and a lot of biases and a lot of errors and sin on both sides as we've struggled to make your will for this world come alive, and yet we've probably miserably failed at that. But Lord, I'm thankful that in the confines of this room, we can at least lay bare and study openly the things that have happened, to call out things for what they are and be honest about them, that we would have the integrity to criticize and be open about our own beliefs and our own faith, and that while we analyze the things and the judgments of other people about us, that we would love instead of fight, 
that we would be able to respond with integrity so that their slander may someday put them to shame. But Lord, we have a responsibility to have an answer. And so far, Lord, we haven't had one. I pray that over the next few weeks, you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and that effectively in this group, we would debate, dialogue, do whatever we needed to do to learn to speak out and to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. I lay all these things at your feet tonight, Jesus. And I humbly ask that you would replace all of the presumed knowledge that we have with the real truth of the Holy Spirit. That it would always be your spirit that teaches and directs, especially as we wander into subjects that are not often covered. Pray these things in your name. Amen. In closing, I want to read this one quote to you that's written by this great theologian. What's his name? We all know Wolfhart Pannenberg, who's the professor of semantic theology at the University of Munich. We often cite him here. Here's what he says. Secularists are right to expose irrationality, fanaticism, and intolerance when they appear in the name of religion. Even if the secularists sometimes do so in order to discredit, to discredit religion. But Christians who lay claim to reason, however, must be ready to accept criticisms and to cultivate an ethos of self-criticism within their own communities. What he's basically saying in plain English is, secularism will probably fall on its own weight if it's false. And it's okay for them to criticize us when we get fanatical and crazy and do funny things in the name of religion. But we ourselves should be self-critical first and find those places. And I hope that we're going to be doing that as we try to maybe heal the divide, at least in our own little group, just understanding the different sides that Christians put on this. So maybe we can have a united front to do it.